Hey, what's going on? This is James Kennedy and welcome back to the James Kennedy podcast. I just want to say a quick thanks to everybody for checking out the podcast so far and uh, sharing it, leaving comments and subscribing and leaving ratings and reviews. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it really helps the, uh, the reach of the podcast and it's also nice to know that these conversations are being enjoyed as well. Today, we are going to be talking about Israel and Palestine. Now, this is an issue that is intensely divisive. And anyone that follows me online knows where I stand on this particular issue because I've been very open and vocal about it many times. But I'm going to be giving the floor over today to our guest who is calling in live from Palestine, who is going to help us make some sense of what is oftentimes a very messy, complicated and emotionally charged issue. And I hope that this chat is going to give you a good compact hour's worth of information with some history and background as to why we're at where we are today, some possible solutions and what you can do to help and get involved. Our guest today is on very tight time, so I'm going to get straight on with it. Dr. Yara Hawari is the Senior Policy Analyst at Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, as well as being a tireless campaigner for the Palestinian cause, an author and a political commentator. There is no one better to speak with us on today's issue than Yara, and I'm really thankful to her for giving us her time today. So calling in live from Palestine, Dr. Yara Hawari, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm glad to hear it. And thank you so much for giving us your time today. We really do appreciate it. Um, before we jump right into the issue, would it be possible to give the listeners just a quick overview of who, it, who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, um, I'm an academic writer and policy analyst. I am Palestinian. I live in Palestine. Um, but I also spent uh, quite a long time in the UK um, studying um, secondary school and, and higher education in, in the UK. But now I'm, I'm back in Palestine. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're well, because I know that it is a very intense time over there at the moment. And this is an issue, as I said, that is extremely divisive. So for the purposes of clarity and setting some context, would it be possible to get a brief um, sort of history lesson and get some background onto why we're at where we're at today in Israel and Palestine? Yeah, and I think it's such a, as you said, it's such a divisive issue. And I think sometimes it's purposefully overcomplicated. So I'll try and provide a, a sort of a, a very succinct history. I think firstly, we have to identify correctly what is happening to the Palestinian people. This is not a conflict. We hear that time and time again in the mainstream media. Yeah, What's happening to the Palestinian people is a process of settler colonialism. So what is settler colonialism? Well, I think many people will probably be familiar with bog-standard colonialism. Uh, an imperial power goes to another country, usually in the global south, and conquers it in order to exploit the land and the people for the profit and benefit of the imperial motherland. But with settler colonialism, it's different because the colonialists are seeking to settle, to create a new homeland exclusively for them. There's this Italian scholar called Lorenzo Veracini who explains this very well. He says that with colonialism, the, the colonialist says to the indigenous uh, or the native, you work for me, whereas the settler colonialist says to the indigenous or the native, you go away. And some examples of settler colonial projects include the United States of America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Yeah. South Africa and Algeria, and these, these latter two are, are actually, South Africa and Algeria are considered examples where the settler colonial project was actually defeated. 
So we have to look at when Zionist settler colonialism began in Palestine. And this predates 1948, which is usually considered as a starting point. Zionism is understood as this political movement uh, that calls for establishing a, a Jewish nation state in Palestine with a Jewish majority. But it's increasingly being understood by many many scholars as a settler colonial movement. And if we go back to 1897, this was when the first Zionist Congress took place in Switzerland. And in this Congress, they established a program where they called for the establishing of a Jewish state in Palestine um, and to begin coordinating the settlement of Zionists there. And this um, what can, this was what they would consider as a solution for the Jewish question. Uh, and of course, the Jewish question uh, was the rise in anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, pogroms, um, uh, increasing alienation. Now, remember, this was before the, the Second World War. Right. Um, uh, and so this was seen as a solution to emancipate the Jewish people from persecution. And so the Zionist Congress was the first to, to organize and marshal the, the colonization efforts in a very centralized and effective way. But what was the issue? The issue was that Palestine was already inhabited. It wasn't an empty land. So the question of what to do with native Palestinian Arabs really animated the early discussions of the Zionist movement. But there was a general consensus that these people would have to be removed somehow, either through some kind of agreement or uh, or by force, but there was a, you know, there was a consensus that there would be no way to establish a Jewish majority state in Palestine without displacing uh, much of the native population. And you don't have to believe me or Palestinian academics that Zionism is a settler colonial movement. You can actually hear it from the horse's mouth. If you look at the writings of the early Zionist founding fathers, you see that they all talk about the Zionist movement as a colonial one. And you have to remember that this was a time when colonialism was a very accepted form of rule. So these founding fathers, including Herzl and, um, and Jabotinsky, were all talking about Zionism um, as a colonial, colonial movement with pride. Um, and so fast forwarding a little bit, Palestine in the early 1900s was still under the Ottoman uh, Empire's rule. And we know then that the Ottoman Empire was in decline and European powers started to, to eye up the region. And there were all kinds of different treaties and agreements that basically carved up the, the spoils of the Ottoman Empire, including in the Middle East, where we saw all these borders being drawn up that didn't exist before. Yeah. And this included the Sykes-Picot Agreement in 1916, which was basically Britain and France deciding what territories they wanted. No surprise there. And Britain wanted the land of Palestine, and they were granted it by the League of Nations as a mandate. Now, this mandate was basically uh, a fancy way to describe a colonial entity. It was supposed to be a system in which Palestine would be prepared for eventual self-rule, but the reality was very different. We also saw in 1917 something called the Balfour Declaration. Yeah. And I mention it because it is an incredibly important document that a lot of Palestinians refer to when they talk about Britain's complicity um, 
in what happened in Palestine. The Balfour Declaration was a letter written by the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, to Lionel Walter Rothschild, a Zionist leader, um, in which he expressed the British government's support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Basically, he was giving away something that he had no right to give away. So the Zionist movement began settling Jewish settlers in Palestine during this period, the Mandate period, and the British actually greatly facilitated the build-up of Zionist institutions, the appropriation of Palestinian land. They incorporated um, a lot of the Zionist settlers into their administration because, of course, they were considered uh, better, more more trustworthy workers than the, than the native Arabs. Um, and, and, of course, there was just a general affinity towards Zionist settlers more than there was to, to, to Palestinians who they were considered as, you know, na- natives beneath them, uncivilized, etc. Now, the, the British were very unsuccessful in their ruling of the, the mandate in many ways. They were incredibly cruel to the Palestinian population. Um, they terrorized the Palestinian population. They prevented the Palestinian population and society from flourishing. There was a great uh, revolt in 1936, um, which is referred to in, in Arabic and by Palestinians as the Great Revolt. It was an uprising against British rule by Palestinians in which many uh, Palestinians were killed. It was brutally crushed. Um, but this was really, this, this 1936 uprising and the crushing of it really um, um, had very dire consequences over a decade later. We saw a lot of political leaders being assassinated, being arrested and hanged, um, weapons confiscated, basically a demobilization um, of the, the Palestinian armed resistance. And so it's no surprise that, you know, over a decade later in 1948, when the Zionist movement began taking over, that the Palestinians were completely unequipped uh, to, to deal with what happened. So the British pulled out of the mandate in Palestine. It was they were really, um, according to their own standards, failing miserable, miserably. And they decided that they couldn't. Uh, handle the situation between the Zionist settlers and the Palestinians, which was growing uh, more tense and and more violent by the day. And so they decided really to pull out just in one go. And there's a common saying among among Palestinians that the British basically handed over the keys Mm. to the Zionist movement. And that's really what they did. You know, in many cases, they left their, you know, weapons supplies, and all their documents uh, there for the taking. Um, now, just in the lead-up, I should say, to 1948, which Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, the Zionist movement was busy collecting information and intelligence on Palestinians and Palestinian localities in preparation for what they would consider the, the final war um, or the final push to conquer uh, Palestine for themselves. So they were incredibly well equipped. And in 1948, that's really when, you know, things uh, started to to kick off. The Zionist um, paramilitary forces began taking over um, more and more land, began expelling Palestinians from their homes and their villages. 
Um, there were many massacres. Um, it was a very organized plan to ethnically cleanse Palestine of its Palestinian population. And in the end, what we saw was nearly 500 Palestinian villages and towns being destroyed and depopulated. And around 800,000 Palestinians were expelled uh, from their homeland beyond the borders of Palestine. And then there were hundreds of thousands more that were internally uh, displaced. The Zionist movement declared independence in May 1948, and they um, declared the, the establishment of the state of Israel. And this was the genesis of the Israeli settler colonial apartheid regime. Right. Now, they occupied, the Zionist movement occupied not all of historic Palestine, but around 80% of historic Palestine. The areas which they were not able to, to occupy in 1948 is what's known today as the West Bank and Gaza. So in the 48 territories, and I'll keep referring to them as the 48 territories, these are the lands that yeah. were occupied by the Zionist movement, the 80% that was occupied in 1948. About 150,000 Palestinians survived the ethnic cleansing, and they were put into camps and ghettos. Uh, they were kept under lock and key in, in their villages, their surviving villages. And eventually they were given uh, Israeli citizenship. But this was a second-class citizenship. They were actually placed under martial law for nearly two decades. And these are the um, these are the, the people that is often referred to in mainstream media today as the Palestinian citizens of Israel. So in 1948, they were 150,000 that survived, and today they number nearly 2 million. So let's fast forward quickly to 1967. There's a lot of history to get through here, but yeah. these are important uh, dates to talk about. 1967 is really the one that's always talked about in the mainstream media. It's often considered as the genesis of the the conflict. And of course, what we've seen is that's not true at all. It actually began uh, many decades before that. But the reason for that is because the international community recognised the Zionist movement's occupation of Palestine in 1948, and they recognized, for the most part, not all countries, but most of them did recognize the state of Israel. In 1967, there was what's known as the Six-Day War um, in, in sort of mainstream historical records. And this was when Israel managed to occupy the rest of Palestine, i.e. the West Bank and Gaza, and even more, they also occupied the Syrian Golan uh, and, and much of the Egyptian Sinai. And this is when they took over all of colonized Palestine. Now, the international community did not recognize that occupation. They said, no, this is a step too far. We are considering this as an illegal occupation, um, uh, as an attempt to take over land that is not yours. And so that's why today you hear people referring to the occupied territories or the occupied 1967 territories. Yeah. These are the lands of the West Bank uh, and Gaza. So a lot has happened since then, but I think we'll, we'll leave it there just for now because that's a lot of history uh, in, in one huge go.
No, that was absolutely brilliant. And thank you so much for condensing all of that into one compact, bite-sized chunk for us all. And that already throws up so many more questions. But being conscious of our time today, I wanted to skip ahead to present day and see if it's possible for you to to give the listeners an insight into what is the daily reality of life like in Palestine today for somebody who's just trying to go about their everyday activities, the sort of things that we might take for granted over here, just ordinary, normal, civil life in Palestine. Could you describe what that is like? I think we have to be a bit specific here because Palestinians face in Palestine face sort of different realities according to where they live and what ideas they have, even though they're all oppressed under this one regime, there are uh, different characteristics for for different realities. So Palestine has been fragmented into um, these various different um, territories or areas, um, the West Bank and Gaza, which are called the 67 territories, uh, these are Palestinians, which under international law are considered as uh, occupi- uh, under military occupation. Uh, they have, um, for the most part, Palestinian uh, IDs. And then we have Palestinians in the 48 territories. These are Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. And then we have Palestinians in exile in refugee camps um, in neighboring countries and um, and beyond. Right. Um, so we can start with the West Bank. Uh, the West Bank has a population of 3 million, nearly 3 million um, people. It's a very small area of land. Um, and it's under military occupation. And so what that looks like um, in, in day-to-day is, you know, checkpoints, um, um, army raids, uh, control over, uh, full Israeli control over natural resources, um, really absolute Israeli control over over life. So within the sort of main urban centers, the main Palestinian urban centers, you move around, you might not uh, think about uh, the occupation because you don't see it so clearly. But as soon as you move outside of that city, um, you know, you start seeing the, the military infrastructure of the Israeli regime. Um, you can't get very far without coming to a checkpoint um, military raids, even in the the Palestinian urban areas, are, are quite common. Right. Um, you are governed by a military rule system, um, which basically makes nearly everything illegal. Uh, and I'm not even exaggerating here. There are there are military orders which deem any kind of political activity illegal. You can't be a member of a political party. You can't. A gathering of more than ten people can be considered as a political rally, wow. uh, and of course, you know, just going to one of the uh, gathering or being a, a member of a political party doesn't mean that you'll be arrested. But the Israeli regime can use any of these things as a pretext to arrest you. And the the carceral system that the Israeli regime maintains is incredibly brutal. Thousands of Palestinians are incarcerated every year. Um, usually, those who are involved in in uh, political or social activities, you know, NGO workers are also frequently um, incarcerated, and it's under a again a military system. So there isn't a civil court. You, if you are arrested, you are taken to a military court where the the conviction rate is at ninety nine point nine percent. Jesus. Um, so you are, if you get to court, for sure you are going to prison. 
Um, and there are many different tactics that the Israeli regime uses to keep you indefinitely detained. So, for example, there's a practice called administrative detention where the Israeli regime can say that they have secret information on you that they can't release because of the security of the state. So they just keep you under indefinite detention. And this can you know, go on for years and years and years. And most Palestinians know someone, either um, a close relative or a, a close friend who is in prison. Um, and I think since 1967, you know, over a million, something like a million Palestinians have have been in prison. So it's a huge part of Palestinian uh, life in the West Bank uh, and Gaza. Now, Gaza, the situation, oh, and of course, I shouldn't talk about the settlements. Now, the settlements in the West Bank, um, these are what the international community refer to as illegal settlements. They are Israeli settlements built in the West Bank on Palestinian land. Um, and there are hundreds of them, and the, yeah. the, the number of illegal settlers now, I think, is about six hundred thousand illegal settlers in the West Bank, including in East Jer- Jerusalem. Now, the settlements um, aren't just these, you know, small encampments. They are essentially cities and towns uh, that are built illegally um, that take resources away from Palestinians, uh, the Palestinian, uh, Israeli, the Israeli regime controls all the natural resources in, in the West Bank, um, and even takes the water and then sells it back to the Palestinians. So, um, they also control, the settlements also control, um, the major, uh, agricultural fertile lands. So the Jordan Valley, um, which is a highly, uh, fertile, uh, region for or area of land um, for for produce is is essentially un, completely under Israeli control. Um, so these these settlements really impinge on every aspect of Palestinian life. There are also uh, settler only roads in the West Bank. So if you're a Palestinian, you're not allowed to go on those roads. Um, it just cuts through these settlements, just cut up the West Bank, and the West Bank isn't this contiguous geographic territory. It's really the small pockets or uh, right. bantustans, for the lack of a better word, of where sort of Palestinians live, completely deprived um, compared to Jewish Israeli settlers who might live just down down the road. Yeah. Um, and Palestinians, you know, even the, the getting from point A to B is is a nightmare. I mean, it sounds really mundane, but Palestinians are funneled onto these tiny roads. And so the traffic is really unbearable. So, you know, it, it's all about controlling Palestinian movement and, and slowing Palestinians down so that they're not, you know, going from place to place so frequently that they're really sort of encased in these in these small areas and small pockets. Would you say that it's fair to compare it to life in apartheid South Africa? So apartheid is a is legally defined as a system of um, um, segregation in order to maintain dominance by one group over another. And it's become a, a system of control that's been, you know, enshrined in within international law. So 
it doesn't have to look like South Africa for it to be apartheid. And I think right. that's really important because, yeah. you know, Palestinians and advocates often talk about, you know, this is like South Africa, this is apartheid. And whilst there are many similarities, there are also many differences. But those differences don't mean that it's not apartheid. Apartheid is quite simply, and, you know, there is, you know, an international law definition uh, which establishes that, uh, that it's you know it, it's it's the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court actually defines it as inhumane acts um, in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups committed with the intent of maintaining that regime. Right. So this is a definition that can be universal, universally uh, universally applicable. I think so. And so it can adopt a lot of different characteristics. And so, yes, there are many similarities with the South African apartheid regime, but there are also many differences. And in some situations, um, differences that make it a lot worse. Yeah. Um, and this is obviously also not to compare to, you know, say one people suffering is worse than another's. But it's, it's just, it's... But there are many shared and many different characteristics and many human rights groups now have actually come out and said that the Israeli regime is practicing apartheid on the Palestinian people, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch right. uh, and, and others. And, you know, Palestinian scholars and, and activists have been saying it for a lot longer than these human rights groups Um but it, in, I, in my belief, it, it, and you know, in the belief of many scholars and organisations, it is an apartheid regime. And you know, you can just look at the other. It's not just in the West Bank that the Israel practices apartheid on the Palestinian people. So, if we look at Gaza, for example, Gaza is considered one of the largest outdoor prisons in the world. It's an area, I think it's around 365 kilometers squared, a very small area, and there are 2.1 million people packed into this area. And of those 2.1, 1.4 million of them are actually refugees uh, from other areas in Palestine. And um, Israel has placed it under siege um, for a decade and a half. And what that means is that it has completely closed off all of its borders and controls all of its uh, land, sea and, and air borders. Um, and so if anyone wants to leave Gaza, they have to do so with permission from the, the Israeli regime. And they've also placed it under blockade. So that means that also nothing goes in or, or goes out without Israeli approval. We're talking, you know, food, um, medical supplies, building supplies, all of that has to come yeah. through. Uh, with the permission uh, of Israel. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, as if things weren't bad enough in Gaza, this densely populated area of land, Israel has also subjected it to um, very intense military bombardments. There have been four wars since 2008 in Gaza, four really brutal wars. So that means, you know, a child of, you know, 15 has seen four wars in their lifetime. Um, and we're talking about, you know, wars in which is, the Israeli regime essentially drops bombs on this very densely populated pe uh, area under the pretext of wanting um, to, um, 
to attack Hamas, the Palestinian political party that is in government in, in, in Gaza. So the situation there is very, very difficult. The UN actually deemed Gaza to be unlivable by 2020. We're now in 2022 and the situation is, is really, really tough. Um, you know, just from down from the basics of not having, um, you know, electricity 24 hours a day. And if you are, they only have electricity a few hours a day, um, and not only does that, you know, affect hospitals and life support machines and, you know, but just basic, you know, daily uh, living, you know, your, yeah. your refrigerator, your laptops, your, your television, um, all of these things, um, you know, you have to arrange your life, schedule your life uh, around these periods of electricity. Uh, and water in Gaza is undrinkable. Um, they, you know, there is barely any drinkable uh, water in Gaza, so it's it's a really, really bad situation, and it's not a humanitarian crisis. You know, it's often referred to as a humanitarian crisis, as if this sort of just happened on its own. It's a political crisis. As if there is a decision being made by the Israeli regime to place these people, these two million people, under siege and blockade. And that could be lifted tomorrow if there was the political will to do so. But the Israeli regime doesn't want to do so. It wants to punish the, the Palestinian population um, in Gaza. And it's a big business as well. It's a big aid and development business, um, you know, and which is, and I think it's a whole other podcast on its own uh, critique of aid and development. And just very quickly, just to talk about, and the 48 territories, those are the Palestinian citizens of Israel who are also about nearly 2 million people. These are the people that were occupied in 1948. Now, whilst they have Israeli citizenship, it's really, you know, a, four, a fourth or fifth level um, citizenship. They do not have access um, to all the things that Jewish Israelis have access to. Um, they're treated as a sort of enemy from within they are they live very separate and segregated lives from jewish israeli counterparts um the areas in which they live in are deeply under resourced right. also look very similar to you know ghettos and Baltistans. um and then in exile there are millions of palestinians in exile who uh either live in refugee camps and bordering right. countries in very difficult conditions in which they're not granted um, um, citizenship and basically have no papers. In many, in many situations, these refugees have been made refugees once again um, because of uh, the war in Syria or the dire situation in Lebanon. So the reality for Palestinians, you know, wherever they live, is a very abnormal one. Yeah, it's one that's full of. Um, oppression and and, and, and and tragedy and but it's also one that's you know sort of survival you know the fact that Palestinians still exist um, in all these fragments um, and yes. still call themselves Palestinian um, I think is a testament to um, the Palestinian people's will to survive Definitely. No, definitely. It, it's a truly heartbreaking situation. And it's it's heartbreaking to witness it from afar as well, particularly if you, you're aware that the mainstream media's um, projection of this is so heavily propagandized and biased in favor of Israel. 
And one of the things that we hear about so much over here as a solution is the two-state solution that is often um, presented as the only workable option at this point. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that as a Palestinian. Is the two-state solution the only solution at this point? Is it a workable, practical solution, a realistic solution? Um, And is it a solution that the Palestinians would actually be okay with? So the two-state solution is something that was um, forced upon the Palestinian people as a compromise, as something that they would have to accept as, you know, if they wanted to achieve any rights. And so the Palestinian leadership, for better or worse, accepted that compromise and pursued negotiations within that framework of two states. So the idea would be that there would be a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza and that the Israeli state would be um, in the 48 territories, bearing in mind that this is a massive compromise. This is, you know, Palestinians saying, okay, we'll take a state on, you know, less than 20% of our original homeland. Um, and so the international community has been, you know, working off this framework as a sort of basis for negotiations. And there were the famous Oslo Accords in the early 1990s, um, which basically were a series of agreements, um, um, in, interim agreements that would lead up to um, the establishment of the Palestinian state. That didn't happen. Um you know, when you read actually the sort of the small print of those slow calls and you, you analyze it with hindsight, you realize that this was a massive mistake that the Palestinian leadership signed on to this and that this was really um, allowed for the entrenchment of further yeah. Israeli domination and control. And the, you know, I think for many Palestinians, the the two-state solution has been if they ever accepted it, and many Palestinians did not accept it, uh, that it has been dead in the water for a very long time. But because the international community is really um, powerless in, in this situation, they are not able to hold Israel accountable to its viola- to the violations it commits against the Palestinian people, nor are they able to hold it um, uh, hold them to their word with various. Uh, agreements being signed and negotiated. Um, and so the international community, for the lack of being able to do anything, keeps on sort of flogging this dead horse that, you know, two-state solution, two-state solution, right. and promoting it as this sort of the, the most feasible and the most rational solution. And in, in actual reality, it addresses very little of uh, Palestinians' desires and hopes for for sovereignty and fundamental rights. Um, So, no, I don't think and I have never thought that the two-state solution um, is a a just option or a viable option. Essentially, it's partition. um, It's creating yet another border in a region which is full of colonial borders. And for me, another one is not the answer yeah um i think you know when it comes down to it palestinians can you know can summarize what they want you know very simply like they want their fundamental rights they want to be able to live as any other people live in the world really you know even 
even more basic than that. I think if you asked any Palestinian on the street, they would, you know, just want to be able to move. They would want yeah. to be able to go to the sea. You know, most Palestinians live within 45 minutes of the sea and they are not allowed to go there. It's, it's deeply sad. And it's these very small things that actually make life um, very, very difficult. And so an end to those, you know, uh, uh, those deprivations and enter those violations, uh, a realization of fundamental rights, including um, ending the military occupation of the 67 lands, including uh, the right of return for refugees, which is really fundamental to the Palestinian struggle, and full and equal uh, citizenship for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And, you know, these, these, these three things that I just mentioned are not not a big ask actually no. they are the minimal yeah. they are fully within international law and i'm sure palestinians i can't speak for all palestinians but i know that you know palestinians will have other demands as well including you know reparations and you know uh, justice and accountability and those are incredibly important but i think you know when when you think about it all of these things are completely reasonable yes. demands and, and completely fall within international law. And yet Palestinians, when they talk about them, are often sort of disregarded as being sort of fantastical, you know, yeah. asking for too much when <laughs> Palestinians have already compromised so much. 100%, yeah, 100%. And essentially what you're saying is, you know, despite you know, any kind of political showboating or whatever that's going on you know, with, between the West and Israel, essentially what Palestinians want is human rights, civil rights, you know, um, justice, equality, and dignity, just, just like everybody else. Yeah, and our political rights as well, and our political rights as a collective. I, I definitely don't want to play down the fact that Palestinians also want, you know, also want their political rights. Um, um, but I think when you when you summarise it like that, it seems completely completely reasonable and what's unreasonable is when they say oh well you know the Israeli regime would never would never accept that well it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that the Israeli regime will not accept that these are enshrined rights within international law yes within the realms of what's accepted as moral and ethical these are not tall demands these are not big demands and if there is an abusive regime uh, of course they don't want to give us that, of course, because it means that it would end their position of dominance and power. Yeah. But tough shit. Sorry <laughs> for the language. But you know, this is what this is what you know, this is what we have to demand of all uh violating and abusive regimes. One hundred percent. And what are the obstacles then to achieving that in Palestine? Well, there are big, big obstacles. Now it's it's very unfortunate for the Palestinian people that the Israeli regime is very important to Western powers for multiple reasons. Yeah, right. The Western powers were so supportive of the establishment of Israel because basically it saw it as this, you know, uh, imperial uh, sort of lookout post in the Middle East. Lieutenant. Exactly, an ally state that they could have watching the naughty Arabs. Yep. And it, the Israeli regime, you know, since then has evolved into this powerhouse of uh, weapons and security technologies. And they have 
their hand in training so many different countries in their securities. Uh, they have their hand in, you know, in selling weapons to so many countries around the world. It's really become, you know, um, um, uh, uh, one of the most important uh, regimes or countries in that regard. Right. And what the Israeli regime does is that it, de- it, it, it develops these weapons and security technologies and it tests them on the Palestinians. The Palestinian people, the West Bank and Gaza, are these laboratories for the Israeli regime. They test these weapons out on us and then they sell them to a global market. Um, and, you know, their tech is really, you know, it's first class and it's, I think it's pretty unbeatable. I think it's described, Israel is described as this sort of startup nation as one of the most tech-savvy nations. Well, among that technology is also, you know, surveillance and spyware, um, which it sells to regimes, to other regimes in the region and beyond, Um really nasty regimes, which also use those technologies to spy and oppress their own, their own people. Yeah. So Israel has become a very important player for a lot of countries around the world. And so protecting its interests um, is of global concern. So in this way, it can seem quite overwhelming. And I think I can understand why people might feel defeatist. Yeah, um, because this is just such a big, you know, such a big thing to take on. You know, we're not just talking about the Israeli regime; we're talking about the whole weapons industry, the whole, you know, surveillance yeah. industry, um, etc. But then, if you sort of flip it on its head and you think about, right, well, these people are, these regimes are oppressing millions of people, and the, you know, the potential for solidarity and cross-movement mobilizing is huge. So it doesn't just become about Palestine. It's about, you know, a global uh, bottom-up movement to challenge and stop the arms trade, um, which Israel, of course, plays a key role. Yeah. So that's what I, when I feel a bit overwhelmed, that's what I always remind myself, that this is, you know, Okay, they are big, they are powerful, but they're also oppressing millions of us, not just in Palestine, but elsewhere. And so we are a lot more than them. Uh, so we do have, in that sense, the, the, the people power. Um, and so, you know, I think that's just one of the obstacles we're facing. I think, um, you know, I think also that there are internally with the Palestinians, there's a lot of internal obstacles uh, our own leadership is i think is one of the biggest obstacles right. not many people are aware that the palestinian authority uh, leadership is um, a very corrupt and authoritarian leadership which um is does a lot of uh, is, is considered by a lot of people a subcontractor for the israeli regime right um it's not particularly unusual in colonial situations that the colonial power will recruit a sort of local or native police force to do its dirty work. And that's really the case that has happened to Palestine. So there is also, you know, an internal problem uh, with leadership, with mobilization. Yeah. But again, I think it's, you know, it's all connected and that's by design. Um, many of our political leaders are in, our revolutionary political leaders are in prison or have been assassinated um, so it serves their interest to put in a leadership 
um, that will be subservient and that will keep the Palestinian population subdued. Uh, there are so many points there that you just made that I would love to embellish further upon, but I know that time is against us. Um, I totally agree, though, that hope can be derived from the fact that this struggle is connected to so many other struggles around the world. I think there is a lot of hope to be derived from that because it means that people in countries such as mine in the UK or in the US and Canada or France or wherever it may be, we can do our part in that struggle. You know, whether it's um, campaigning against the arms industries that profit from this or lobbying our governments who um, support this, it makes the fight so much more global. And in those terms, the Palestinian struggle now has millions and millions of allies all around the world. And I think a lot of hope can be drawn from that. So practically speaking, what can people listening to this from countries around the world who, who are motivated to get involved in help, what can they do that would be useful? Well, I think two things, really. I think firstly, to, to, to join or be part of local um, Palestine solidarity movements, whether that's BDS groups, BDS standing for Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions yeah. uh, movement groups or, or just general Palestine solidarity groups, um, wherever you are. Um, and to really focus on on linking these groups up with, with other uh, social justice and political struggles because, you know, as we just talked about, um, they they are so uh, uh, so connected and they are inherently connected to one another. But I, the second thing, and I think this is um, understood, is quite frequently understated. You know, Palestine won't be liberated whilst we have um, all the regimes that are, all the governments and regimes that are currently in place. It is within the interest of capitalist uh, and right wing regimes that Israel, you know, exists as it does as an apartheid state, um, as a settler colonial project, and so it. It means that there has to be a global shift in politics, that people have to work wherever they are um, in changing their politics to a more progressive, to a more left-wing one, to one that is more focused around social justice and uh, has an emancipatory uh, politics, emancipatory global politics. Um, so, you know, if you are somewhere that doesn't have you know, a Palestine solidarity group or a BDS group. I mean, you could start one, but you could also work, you know, hard on, on making sure that your local government and the, or the national government, wherever you are, is one that is more uh, friendly to the Palestinian struggle for liberation, right. yep. that adopts a political agenda um, that is not just about, you know, obviously not just focused on Palestine, but that includes Palestine as part of a progressive uh, lib uh, a progressive package political package um, um, that addresses you know climate change that addresses Palestine that addresses uh, indigenous rights um, etc so I think you know people shouldn't be overwhelmed by the fact that they are far away and they might not know what to do you know Palestine is connected it's, it doesn't exist in a vacuum and the Palestinian people are a diasporic people. We do exist in a lot of places around the world and yeah. it's not hard to find some of us. Um, so I think there are plenty of opportunities for people um, to get involved and work for the, you know, uh, work towards the liberation of Palestine. And there is a lot going on online as well. Um, the, 
uh, BDS Movement website has um, a lot of really useful resources. There are a lot of student groups. Uh, so if you're a student, undoubtedly on your campus, there is a Palestine uh, solidarity group. So there's a lot of things that can be done, but I don't want people to feel overwhelmed that there's just, it's just too much. I think um, uh, that's also not to be complacent. I think, you know, in this day and age, we have to be very careful with complacency. And, you know, social media posting is not enough. It doesn't quite cut it anymore. Yeah, we, it, has to be, it has to be accompanied with uh, direct political action. Um, but I think, you know, I think we are becoming more connected to one another and I think our struggles are linking up. Uh, so I do think there are, there is plenty of opportunity. Yeah, and there are countless Palestine solidarity groups around the world as well. So wherever you are listening to this from, there will be a group local to you that you can get involved with. Another thing I wanted to ask you was, what role do the citizens of Israel play in this and can they be a part of the solution? Well, I think for you know any settler colonial nation, there's there has to be a deep process of unlearning. Um, these are people that have you know been conditioned to to believe that uh, their their dominance over another group is is justified and um, is the right is right. So I think it's a deep process of unlearning, and it has to be a collective one. It's not just good enough that you know one person. Uh, is uh, becomes an anti-Zionist. It has to be, you know, really um, a, a collective process. So it's going, it's doing that, you know, working on your own society. And there are, you know, in South Africa, there were white Afrikaners that were part of the anti-apartheid struggle, and there were also white Afrikaners that worked on educating um, the white population. But it wasn't. You know, it wasn't a huge part of the struggle in the sense that that's what the struggle relied upon, you know, changing the minds of the, yeah. the settler colonial. Right. Essentially, what the downfall of apartheid in South Africa was because it came under massive um, pressure um, from the outside and the international community with sanctions. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, I think that we cannot wait for Israeli society to realize, to wake up and realize what they're doing. Um, right. I think it has to come from the outside because when that pressure is applied, I think, you know, they'll go through that process a lot quicker. But we've done it before. We've seen it time and time again, haven't we? So we know it is possible and as bleak as it seems, and it does seem looking in from the outside as if things are getting worse, you know, with the continued expansions into the occupied territories. And obviously, you know, I wanted to touch more today on, uh, we, obviously we haven't got time, but, you know, but the shooting recently of Shireen Abu Akler and the, um, the disgraceful display that we saw at her funeral procession, uh, it does oftentimes seem as if things are getting worse. But as you alluded to earlier, there's that, this, the human spirit and that strength of spirit within the Palestinian people uh, that has fought for so long now. So there is hope. And as you say, you know, awareness, we are in a globally connected world now. You know, the, the awareness around the world on this issue is growing stronger by the day. So um, if, if everybody does their bit, I think that there is hope that, um, you know, we can see a better day. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned Shireen Abu Hakler because you know, I, that was a really, really, um, you know, it was it was shocking and it was not shocking. It was shocking um, because we all entered as a nation into 
sort of uh, collective grief and mourning, but it wasn't surprising. And I know the the international community was deeply surprised, but, you know, it's because it received attention. Shireen was a well-known, you know, uh, journalist known around the, the Arab world. She yeah. had an international platform. But she's not the first journalist uh, to be assassinated and killed. Uh, she wasn't the last. There has already been other uh, another journalist that has been killed since her. Um, so I think moments like this are important to highlight the the ongoing um, system of uh, or, or the ongoing violence here that's committed by the the Israeli regime. Um, and again, you know the the beating of the the coffin bearers at her funeral, you know, was, it was horrific to see. It was. But again, it wasn't, you know, for Palestinians, it wasn't surprising. Like there are no, uh, there are no, we, right. we're not surprised by what they do anymore because they have done so much to us. Um, but I think moments like that are important. Um, and I think that there is, you know, the, the public opinion on the Israeli regime is shifting it's becoming very hard to defend um, actions like that. And I think, you know, it's important that people stay engaged. I completely agree. Well, Yara, I know you've got to go. So as much as I I want to keep you talking, I I know I've got to let you go. So thank you so much for giving us your time today. I know how incredibly busy you are. And thank you for everything you're doing on this issue as well. This is such a crucial issue on the world stage. And I hope you'll come and speak with us again sometime. Um, But in the meantime, stay safe and stay strong. Thank you so much for having me on. Anytime at all. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks again, Yara. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. I really hope you found that informative and interesting. I mean, Yara knows everything there is to know on this issue, and she was absolutely brilliant at condensing so much history and background down into those 10-minute bite-sized chunks for us to digest. She was on a tight time slot because she had another interview lined up right after this one. But for those of you who don't know much or enough about this issue, I'm hoping that now after listening to the past hour that you've got a much broader and deeper understanding of exactly what's happening over in Palestine. And usually I tend to rant and riff at the end of these things and put my own 10 cents in. But I, I'm not going to do that this week because I, there's nothing I can say that's going to embellish or amplify what Yara has already said. And I don't feel that it's my place to try and do that. If after listening to that, you'd like to get more involved in this cause, there are tons of groups that you can check out. Here in the UK, there's a group that I've done a few things with in the past called the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. There's also Pal Action. And you can check out some of the BDS groups as well, which stands for Boycott, Divest and Sanction. And you can follow Yara directly on Twitter at Yara Hawari. I really hope that after listening to that, you will be motivated to get involved in this cause because it is such a heartbreaking struggle that just does not need to happen and should not be happening. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and I shall see you next week. Same time, same place. Don't forget to subscribe, share, leave a rating, leave a review, leave a comment. I'll see you next week. Love you guys. Cheers.